If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. It was so hard to think an audience was going to buy this idea about female political power before the suffrage because we're so wedded to the notion that women in politics is a modern innovation, that there's been a long struggle to get the vote and women had no place in politics until, you know, the modern end of history. And so to suddenly introduce the idea that women are at the heart of politics earlier throws an audience in terms of what they're expecting from the past. And so I think the favourite has done us a huge service in saying these women are politically powerful, they're independent, they're strong. That was Hannah Gregg discussing the new film, The Favourite. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. One of the most talked about historical dramas of recent times is the new film The Favourite, which explores the court of Queen Anne and stars Olivia Colman in the lead role. The film has been highly popular with audiences and critics alike, but how accurate a portrayal of the Stuart court is it really? 
and how far does it reflect what life was truly like for aristocratic women in the 18th century? Well, to explore these questions and more, we gathered a panel of expert historians to discuss the history behind the drama. On the panel were Professor Amanda Vickery of Queen Mary University of London, the historian and author Hallie Rubenhold, and Dr Hannah Gregg of the University of York, who was a historical advisor on The Favourite. The three historians met at our London offices a few days ago, and their discussion was chaired by our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans. And please be aware that this conversation does contain some rather frank descriptions of sexual activity. So I thought we could start with the film itself because it's not your traditional period drama. It kind of upends everything we might think we know. So we're talking about The Favourite. It's set in Queen Anne's court um, and the three protagonists are women, the two women who jostled for her uh, attentions and there's a real power struggle there. It's a really, really interesting subject. So I thought... um, Hannah, as you were historical advisor to the film, I thought we could perhaps start with you introducing us to the very stylized film that is The Favourite. Well, I think The Favourite is a really exciting film in terms of the genre of a period drama. And I think the director was probably quite interested in playing with that genre quite a lot. And it probably upends our expectations of what we might think a history film should look like or what it should do. And um I don't know, we're waiting for feedback really from the audience, but I suspect that they'll be quite surprised by some of the content um, that they see on screen. Um, It's not often we have these kind of big female leads in a period drama. It's not often we have a drama that's centred entirely almost around female narratives. Um, The period of history that engages with the early 18th century court of Queen Anne is again not one that's very familiar on screen. Um, And then, of course, the style and the content in terms of the aesthetics of the film and the visual narrative is is very different to what we might expect um, from what is often called kind of bonnet and bustle period dramas on Sunday night television. Uh, So I think the film's really exciting in that way. And the women who are featured, um, we've got Sarah Churchill and Abigail Masham, um, really powerful women, powerful characters within the film. And some people have maybe said that it, it... you know, harnesses the Me Too zeitgeist that's going on, that that these women wouldn't have had such power. But what, what what do you say to that? Well, the history is much longer than Me Too. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the film does deal with real historical characters who were operating in that court at the time. So there is a much, much longer trajectory to that story. Um, and also the development of the film is much longer than the kind of the zeitgeist of the Me Too um, movement as well. Um, but I think that probably helps an audience capture some of its aspects and its, its elements in that some of these ideas about women's position of power are being discussed in the media and other contexts as well. So why then were the early 1700s and and Queen Anne's reign so conducive to women moving in these spaces, be it politically or creatively? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that we have a reigning queen. She's queen regnant. She's not a consort. She's the sovereign in her own right. So she is the very uh, pinnacle of favour. She uh, still, although it's a constitutional um, monarchy, nevertheless, masses of power still issues via the sovereign. And so I think that is gives her a kind of unique position and the women around her unique access to the levers of power. Uh, the film presents her uh, poor Queen Anne as rather tragic and sometimes sort of a bit 
dim and not quite with it. And therefore, you know, the um, the leaves, levers of power, they're just waiting there for somebody to try and exercise them. And it's in that space that Sarah Churchill makes her move. But isn't it questionable about how... I mean, the film depicts her as somebody who just doesn't have her hands on the reins of power. She doesn't understand what's going on. And so she leans on Sarah Churchill to tell her and inform her. But from what we know about Queen Anne, that wasn't the case at all. And she used to attend all the cabinet meetings, for example. And she, you know, she wasn't completely detached from what was going on. And so I think that's an interesting choice by the filmmakers to new to her in that way as a monarch? Well, um, it presents her, though, very ill and apparently at the end of her life and at the end of these unimaginable tragedies of, you know, carrying, bearing and losing. Is it 17 17 children? And so... um, I didn't take that as, as an assessment of all she was mm. capable of, although I gathered that even at her coronation, she had to be carried in a sedan. On a sedan, yeah. So mm. I think, you know, there was always some sort of physical frailty there. But I didn't read the film as, oh, this is what we think of monarchs, this is what we think of women. I sort of saw it as a kind of very high camp uh, baroque, bravura, mm. black comedy. So mm. it's almost like it's like the American melodrama all about Eve, but set in the early 18th century court. Mm. And for that, I, you know, I took it for um, the entertainment value that that offered me. And those three actresses really kind of burn up the screen. And mm. you know, just as a revisioning of power, I thought it was thrilling. Mm. Mm. And I think, you know, Queen Anne has often been subject to some very stringent caricatures about her her limitations and the nature of her reign, which have been revised significantly by historians recently. And the film could, could possibly go further in terms of recovering some of the aspects of her reign. But it's not really a political history telling. And her physical frailty was a real aspect mm. of her her time on the throne. She came to the throne at a poor period of her physical health and at the end of an emotional journey of all of these terrible, terrible repeated losses of stillbirths and pregnancies and, and you know, babies who died after a few days or a few months or then one son who lived until he's 11 and just this absolutely gruesome, brutal kind of reality of human existence that she was carrying with her. And I think the film does capture that, that realism in a very profound way that period dramas often shy away from. And, you know, for me... I mean, the film doesn't really have anyone winning. There's no obvious heroine. But if there is anyone who has power at the end, I suspect it's Queen Anne. She is the one who dominates, who decides who is the favourite. She's the one who decides their fate. She's the one who exiles the Duchess of Marlborough from court. So she is the one who ultimately holds power. And I think that does underscore her position as a monarch Mm. and reinforce her status in, in history in some way, whilst also revealing just the, the, you know, sheer challenges of being a female monarch in those circumstances when you have a frail body that's failing you but this the 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 fate of the nation depends on it you haven't produced an heir the kingdom is hanging in a balance there's been generations of warfare of revolution of political conflict and i just feel that's a massive burden Mm. that she carried in her reign absolutely absolutely actually one thing that quite intrigued me is the equivalent would be Elizabeth I, who obviously was, uh, you know, she had 
the heart and stomach of a king. You know, she was the mighty virgin queen and also prince of her people. But towards the end of her reign, the, there's an obsession with her failing body mm. and also an interest in who will be the heir. And, you know, we can see that in the rival historical drama that's uh, that's coming out about Mary, Queen of Scots. But interestingly, they chose the filmmakers chose not to have anything in there about who will succeed. Mm. I mean, I thought that was quite an interesting mm. choice, given that it's about to kick off with, you know, Jacobite rebellion and um, and also, you know, the Hanoverian implant. So uh, George I, I was quite intrigued, actually, that that was a path sort of not taken. It was. It's as if, like, the nation is riding to a precipice. It was very focused on the relationship of those three women. And I thought that that was interesting in itself, you know, the fact that, as you were saying, they chose this is not a political drama. This is not a story. This is not a film which gives us a tremendous amount of backstory about what's going on. It was literally a drama about three women in a very unique set of circumstances, which is one is the monarch. I mean, how much more unique can you get than that? And then the women she chooses um, to bring close to her and be intimate with in, in more than one way. Um, I think, I, I mean, I had I had a number of feelings about, about this and how this was portrayed. I mean, obviously, the decisions to make it that about what I just described as, you know, was, was very, very deliberate. But I wonder, you know, the way in which the male element and the outside element was excluded kind of made these women almost more powerful than they would have been. So, for example, I mean, even Sarah Churchill um, said that, you know, I would have been nothing without the assistance of, of my husband and, um, and, and Lord Godolphin also. And the fact that, you know, the, the women bounce their power off of the power of men and they navigate between male power, the, the, you know, the sort of crevices between male power in order to find their own. And we didn't get a sense of that because because there was almost no male presence. But I loved that, Hallie. That's <laughs> that's where the excitement of it lay for me. Mm. I thought it was quite wonderful that for once, just for once, the women are central to the power play and the men are a sort of plumed irrelevance. I mean, I just saw that as a bit of poetic license because after all, you know, I'm a, I'm a, his, uh, a feminist historian, historian of gender. I'm very well aware of the weight of patriarchy, but do I always want to see it on screen? No, not necessarily. And so the idea that these men were, you know, jockeying for power at the edges, at the fringes, they incredibly kind of plumed and berouged mm. and doing you know, silly things like duck races or I pelting, wonderful, pe- pelting but- people with pomegranates. So yeah. all of that, I thought that was a choice for once to present women at the centre of power. Because how many, if you just think of all the films that are out at the moment, or you might see on, you know, uh, Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, say, say if you look at even something like The Post, mm. so much of it is about you know, men in, men in rooms, making decisions, we're thinking, we're thinking. Not really and, listening to the women in the rooms. Yeah, well, and the, all the women in the rooms hardly there, you know, yeah. sort of, well, here's your bloody Mary, darling. I mean, <laughs> I re, re-watched uh, The Dam Busters uh, this holiday, and in that, the women have about three lines. One is, 
more cocoa, sir. And the other one is flying tonight, sir. I thought, well, you know, just for a change. And the women are not talking about the men as well. I mean, heroically, it absolutely passes the Bechdel test over and over again. It does, but I do have a point that I wanted to make about because I walked out of this thing, and I know I'm sounding hypercritical. I want to say, first of all, there were lots of things that I really, really liked and really appreciated about this film. But I felt at certain points the film was so self-conscious in its desire to meet the qualifications of the Bechdel test that they over played their hand. And I think to the point where you get an anti-feminist's picture of what, a, you know, a feminist or a woman is, which is, you know, uh, you know, a powerful woman is a woman who is a lesbian, eschews male physical um, interaction, um, is, is, you know, strides around in men's clothes, is violent, you know, um, is not soft and approachable and feminine. And, and I think, I think, you know, as I say, I think they sort of overplayed their hand. But I would disagree, Hallie, about the lesbian point, because I think... I think the film was agnostic on sexual identity. Mm. It, uh, and, and in that way, actually, it was very much in line with uh, scholarship on the history of sexuality. Mm. So sex is in the film, as in recent revisioning, revisionings of sexuality, are, sex is an act, it's not an identity. So I don't think the film ever says, well, these are three lesbians. They're just deploying sex... As and when, but I, I don't think it went kind of to the heart of who they were, nor did I assume that Sarah Churchill didn't love her husband. Mm. Um, it, it, it's true that Emma Stone's character, Abigail Masham, she seems only really to care about herself. And uh, as she says in the film, I'm on my side. Always, all that, the time. That wedding night scene is something. <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely, <laughs> I love that scene because, you know, there she is. So her husband is saying, here I am on my wedding night with a mighty erection. And then, you know, she takes care of it while not even looking at him and just plotting, plotting. About, <laughs> but if she comes back, what will I do then? You hear him sort of moaning in the background. But I just thought that, that was a very black camp piece of humour. I mean, mm, I, mm. I just think it's an extraordinary, it's a kind of chamber piece, but a, sh- a sort of shriek of black comedy. Yeah. yeah but also for me as, as a historian, it's all sort of about how do you free women from those shackles of narratives that we've always been constrained by as historians and that women appear in birth and marriage registers and how else do we find them? Where do we find their stories? And that wedding night for me as a historian, it's like, yeah. well, actually, this is what we do if we free ourselves from that presumption mm-hmm. that this kind of marriage has totally changed her life and now she's just going to, you know, live happily ever after with Masha. But it's interesting how uncomfortable it makes us when we try and think about women's historical stories freed from those kinds of parameters of what the role of men is in that story. And, you know, one of the issues that women's historians have often come up against when we're trying to talk about political history is a continued response that, oh, well, women might have made the dinners, but they didn't do the real stuff of politics. They didn't actually make a political difference, that they were the wives, they weren't the MPs. So, you know, you can talk about their political interests all you like, but, you know, it's just a a lot of... A lot of frivolous nonsense. And actually what the film does is it shows these women as deeply politically passionate in the case of the Duchess of Marlborough, in a position of power in the place of Queen Anne, 
are able to manipulate some of those parameters in the case of Abigail Masham and the men on the parameters doing the frivolous dinners and the poncing around and the, the fine clothes. But the men were clothes. frivolous. I mean, that's, again, where yeah. I think the film really excels, as you were pointing out. I mean, the duck races, that, that sort of weird scene where they're throwing, what is it, oranges or pomegranate. But I thought, I thought that was fantastic. And the way the men ponced around in you know enormous wigs, as they did, and, you know, this kind of frilly sleeves and all of this frothiness, that's actually what it was like, you know, and that was male culture. Mm. And and I thought, well, that is wonderful because actually, you know, you do get this total reversal where you have the women who are actually in power and the men who are the decoration mm. around the outside. I like the fact that the film allowed um, Sarah Churchill to have ideological commitments. So, I mean, she did seem to be acting as the kind of the right hand of her husband, um, John Churchill, you know, winning the Battle of Blenheim and what have you. But nevertheless, she seemed to have ideas and a political project Mm. of her own, a political Mm. agenda. I did see someone joke on Twitter that their favourite is the best film ever made about the land tax. There's a little bit of a history lesson in there, in the sideline somewhere. But um, but I think it does capture her her political passion and and brilliance in really interesting ways. And I think that, um, you know, lots of an audience of period dramas will be surprised by the amount of power that is placed in the hands of the Duchess of Marlborough in the film and in the story and, and in the history. And I think that is a real value to the kind of bravery of this sort of filmmaking, that it allows us to open up narratives about the possibility of that for women in politics and political power, because that has always been a massive kind of obstacle in terms of thinking about historical film. Um, So, I mean, 10 years ago, I worked on The Duchess, The Duchess of Devonshire, which is the film, the kind of biography film about Georgina, Duchess of Devonshire, which is set in the late 18th century. And to historians, she is an incredibly important political power player. She is, um, you know, the hostess of the Whig Party. Um, But in the film, it was almost impossible to kind of work that narrative in in a significant way because it was so hard to think an audience was going to buy this idea about female political power before the suffrage because we're so wedded Mm. to the notion that women in politics is a modern innovation, that there's been a long struggle to get the vote and women had no place in politics until, you know, the modern end of history. And so to suddenly introduce the idea that women are at the heart of politics earlier throws an audience in terms of what they're expecting from the past. And so I think the favourite has done us a huge service in saying these women are politically powerful, they're independent, they're strong, and we can start to work from that narrative to introduce other aspects of women's past mm. in a new way, which has been so difficult to achieve in dramas today. Yes, I like the fact that it took for granted that they were political actors. So there's no sitting down an exposition. Here yeah. we are. It's a female court. You know, there are some ways that despite patriarchy, women can... It just plunges you straight in. It just takes it for granted. Yes. There's yeah. no explanation. They're saying, oh, this is a female trailblazer who totally changed the political landscape or fought against the parameters of the day. The male politicians that we see in the film are just accepting of the fact that the women control the cards and they're waiting for their access to the monarch in order for them to play their hand themselves. And that, I think, is a huge, Mm. you know, step forward for us in thinking about women's history and how we present it. Some male historian friends of mine, though, have made the same complaint that Halley's just made about the you know, the film underestimating the role of Godolphin or, uh, and, um, you know, you can see that it's kind of, 
irritating. But <laughs> about uh, time. Well, <laughs> yeah. well I, I agree, but I suppose it raises behind that a different question, which is, you know, how far are we really interested in having, a, you know, a, a, a highly realistic reimagining of the court of Queen Anne? Because, of course, whatever is created is a representation. So the idea that somehow, I think it's a kind of false god, the idea that you would have utter, utter realism. And in fact, it's often, I think, in moments when the film is very, very artificial and unreal, that actually I thought some new truths were shown. So an example for me would be the fabulous... Uh, dance that Sarah Churchill performs and it's like a a sort of court it's a bit like a kind of strictly show dance but I thought well how fantastic because it was so over the top and bizarre but I thought well actually you can see why that might have been a thrilling moment and why it might have been a shocking moment where as soon as you saw you see a minuet you don't it it doesn't have the impact on you as an audience as it would have done at court at the time. Exactly, exactly. And actually, Hannah and I spoke before, earlier, about the idea of historical paraphrasing in in historical drama. So, or or modern paraphrasing of of historical phenomena and behaviour. And and I think this film does that in the same way that, for example, Marie Antoinette, which I really liked, you may disagree, but I felt like, for example, with Marie Antoinette, you have the court of Versailles being compared in many senses to an American high school. And it was. That is an accurate comparison because the bitchiness, the gossip, the sense of being trapped there, that you wanted to get in with the popular clique, you know, all of this and how oppressive it was and also how young it was as well with a very young queen at the centre. That is very, I mean, it's very similar to what is done with the favourite, which is it takes, for example, like the dance, and it takes, you know, all of this sort of, uh, you know, they could have done a minuet and they could have, you know, all of this kind of power play that occurred on the dance floor, but they paraphrased it in this very modern, avant-garde, bizarre, surrealist way where they're suddenly doing all of this strange footwork Um and it works because you realise this is a power play between those two. And it would have been seen that way. The, the sheer flamboyance of it worked. I mean, for me, one of my favourite historical um, dramas is uh, Fellini's Casanova. Mm. And in that, there's, you know, realism is utterly discarded. And at one point, you know, plastic sheets represent the sea. But I remember in, there's a scene in that when Casanova is sort of being anointed and uh, cleaning himself and powdering himself in preparation for an orgy. And I thought, well, that's an enlightenment moment. You know, this is enlightenment orgies. You know, it's it's you don't just hurl yourself into an orgy. You prepare your body, you prepare your mind. And I thought, well, that has actually captured something yes. about the, the nature and artifice in Enlightenment Europe. It, it's absolutely, I agree. And you, you, one of the things that Hannah had said about the quote that you, when we were discussing this earlier about when you are 
talking to filmmakers about how to make the best way to interpret history. And what was the quote that you used? Well, my mantra is always choices, not mistakes. Choices, not mistakes. You use a historical expert because it allows you to make well-informed choices rather than just kind of plunge into some world of error. And I think all of these dramas that we're talking about, they're not licensed to do whatever you like with history because, you know, films like The Favourite and Casanova, these moments that inspire us as historians are the ones that are actually informed by knowledge. And exactly. I think, you know, with The Favourite, one of the things I loved about it when I saw it in the screening is the costume and, and you know, the visual aesthetic of the whole film. And the costumes kind of capture much of what the film's doing in terms of the silhouettes are all period precise, but the fabrics and the designs are absolutely not. And I think Sandy Powell, the designer, has been quoted as saying that actually you need to know the rules before you break them. And there's layers of knowledge throughout the film that show the depth of understanding, which then was played around with us another another layer. And that's why it's really helpful to have kind of experts involved in these kind of production processes because you can get to that point of moving away from mistakes or just doing something for a laugh or because it seems frivolous or for shock factor and actually making a choice about what it is you're trying to achieve with that moment. I loved the monochrome court, the monochrome monochrome costumes. I think they're in Kensington Palace, which is kind of bizarre. (laughs) They're amazing that they're in the palace. I loved (laughs) also those, those typical Queen Anne, Headdresses yes. seem to be yeah, sort yeah. of fluted, and sometimes they seem to be made out of tooled leather. And you, mm. ne- you never see those really in mm. museums so much because we tend to, you know, visually we associate that period with the portraits that use those very loose drapery, mm. that kind of costume, yeah, artistry. I gather it's but, it's actually quite hard to reconstruct what the um, the costumes of Queen Anne's court were like for that reason you know that very little survives and those mantras which were characteristic have been yeah. kind of cut up but we, I suppose we do know from cartoons and piecing together what does survive but that worked brilliantly for me where I do know another friend of mine a decorative arts specialist was saying I thought Queen Anne's uh, dressing gown seemed to be made out of a candlewick bedspread. I thought, well, that's neither here nor there. You know, their servants suppose made up denim. So yes. it <laughs> and also, every production has its constraints. But I think, though, I mean, I wonder, would, well, there's some part of the audience that might only be happy if, you know, the China was perfectly yeah. period specific, is if every word was period specific. Um, but it's a different then, type but, of film. But even then, I think it still wouldn't be, in my view, anything approaching an accurate, mm. accurate mm. representation mm. of the early 18th century. I think, although there has been, I have heard some criticism of the modernisms of the script. I wonder what you think about that, Hannah. Well, I think the script works well for what the film is in its whole. I mean, I don't think that the script can be separated out from the film as a well, entity, but you know, that was part of it. The I suppose it's lines like, well, it's utterly modern, isn't it? Things like, Queen Anne saying, do you have a problem with that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, but then we, we're often complaining about the kind of faux Georgian that you get in That's lots true. of scripts yeah. and, yeah. you know, and the fly. presumption that yeah. people speak in incredibly convoluted ways. Um, it's also not necessarily how people communicated in the past. So it's very hard to get to any kind of level of real accuracy in all of these details that's going to ensure that both visually and in terms of words and language and space and place, that everything is absolutely period precise because that's an ideal which we can never achieve. But I think we can do other interesting things with these dramas. And as a consultant, I'm often asked about 
small points of detail, like, oh, is this the right cup? Or, you know, should, is that jacket correct? And I was longing for a drama where the questions were of a different nature, where we weren't worrying about the last minute spot checking of details and trying to add a period kind of flavouring to the final um, surface detail. But actually, we were starting with the history and then they could do whatever they wanted from mm. that position. And, you know, so the film was a real breath of fresh air in terms of working in a completely different way at earlier stage and not at all later. Yeah, so the um, ideas, historical ideas then and interpretations are driving it rather than... And then exactly. what, what the presentation is like... It's a, ma- it's a matter of artistic license, yeah. and I think there should be a freedom of artistic license in some of those, in, in some of that moments of interpretation. Well, it's, it's as we were saying, it's it's the um, historical paraphrasing for a modern audience. So, you know, what you were saying about Georgian language is, you know, that's very, very interesting, you know, and, and we walk a very fine balance with that. It's largely meeting a modern audience's expectation of what Georgian sounded like, you know, or Victorians or Tudors or whoever, while still making um, their language understandable to to the modern modern audience and conveying you know deeper and more complex ideas, and I think in that way, in fact, that was fine. I think the language was fine because again, it's that you know they would have said it a different way, but what was being expressed was spot on. Hallie, I gather though from social media that you object to some aspects, what you see as an overly modern idea of what um, sex is? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> it was more specifically with reference to something I had read about the upcoming Mary Queen of Scots film about cunnilingus. There was an article about oral sex and some of the choices the director of the upcoming Mary Queen of Scots film made. And in order, I think... And I have not seen this film, hands up, so I'm not 100% well informed on this. But this idea that people were having modern sex in the past, I think, well, it makes me roll my eyes slightly. Because yeah, but are you sure? Can you be sure? And this is what intrigues me. Do you think that there was no um, cunnilingus? No, no, I think there in the past. There, I will say there was. There was, absolutely. But... How do you know? What's the evidence? Because there's a lot that's been written about how people find uh, oral sex um, an aberration, a deviancy, um, that it's something, you know, if you are going to a prostitute, for example, and she, she, um, say, for example, plays the skin flute... That is a real <laughs> speciality, and it's it's and it's a perversion, <laughs> and it's a perversion, yes. you know, and and the idea that that a woman, you know, would be asking to do that, and there's discussion about the dirtiness of people's genitals, you know, and that this is a deviance, um, a deviant behaviour, because women didn't wash, you know, when. When, for example, um, bidets were used, it was more acceptable and it was believed as something more, for example, French because because women washed themselves and therefore they were cleaner and therefore it was thought that they were readier for sex. And, and at the same time, uh, I mean, obviously this is one of the most mysterious areas of uh, human life even today, mm. never mind in the past when records are so patchy. But 
it's clear that if you look at some 18th century um, erotica, mm. for instance, uh, a pamphlet called The Journey to Maryland, yeah. it's very clear that you know, the joke is that finally you find the mountain clitoris, which is the seat and metropolis of pleasure. So... You know, they have they discovered... They knowledge. They, they had discovered the clitoris. You know, they knew it was there and they knew what it did. And also in the in the 17th and it's still in the early 18th century, there was the belief that a woman had to have an orgasm to conceive. Exactly. So it, it makes me think it's not uh, quite as uh, out of the question as one... Well, let's not just say that it wasn't in... I mean, it'd be absurd. Everything's indulged in and everything has been indulged in since the beginning of the, you know, time, since the year dot, you know. And we know, for example, from, you know, uh, from from Roman um, uh, mosaics and, and friezes, you know, that they were doing everything. And there's nothing new under the sun, you know, absolutely. But, I mean, that's not to say that things don't, you know, attitudes do and don't change. And, you know, obviously the church governed a lot of how people perceived sex in the past, you know, and the idea that non-procreative sex was indulged in, you know, you have to think about the personal experience and how people interpreted that. No, I understand. I mean, I hear what you're saying, because clearly the 18th century is phallocentric. So there's no crime of lesbianism in the 18th century, though there is a crime of sodomy, because the... There's an impossibility of imagining that it might be sex if there's no penetration. So I do absolutely take your point that there's a focus on penetrative heterosexual sex and that that's what sex is. But still, I was just intrigued by how emphatic you were about <laughs> well i think it's because no i see it well i see it a lot 1936 no definitely not um, but i see it a lot in in period drama now i see a lot you know that 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 it's becoming normalized but it's actually what how we conceive of norm of of of, of sex in in a modern framework you know and and it's that that is being imposed on people in the past. And and sex was so complicated, you know, as it is now. What would history but, sex look like? I mean, how yeah, would we make do you know, how I'll would tell we make you, a more I'll, historically accurate? Well, do you know what I thought <laughs> one of the most historically accurate sex scenes, actually, I thought it was brilliant. I was literally cheering. But it's a type of historically accurate sex scene was in the series John Adams. When John Adams and Abigail Adams were reunited um, in France for the first time after years. And literally, he literally just pushed her down on the bed lifted up her skirt and wham bam thank you man and she's just lying there like oh okay and and I thought but that is you know it's in the 18th century it was like it's all about the man largely you know a man doesn't necessarily have an understanding of of, of how to pleasure his wife and maybe if he's reading the right books he would but and I just thought that must have been and what I have read has been the experience of women in terms of sex for for many, many years. Well, yes, the sexual dark age is with <laughs> Ali Rubinoff. No, but I also but... read, I've read uh, marital love letters in which women sort of say, oh, well, express far greater sensuality course, within their course. relationship. The, the letters, you know, the Duchess of Leinster, for example. Yeah. You know, yes, I mean, that's yes. a really good example. And so there's a lot of, you know, I, I sniff the pillow and so... 
I can't get to sleep because you're not here. Yeah, Yeah, I can't get to sleep. You know, I'm lying awake without my usual method of getting to sleep, (laughs) wink. So there is a lot, obviously, absolutely. But, you know, as I said... That's one type of sex, you know. Um, but to but I think I'm sure it was common. It's, honey. It's, I do agree. <laughs> it's, but it's you know it's so hard to get to the technicalities of what happens sexually in history. I think until you find the one source that blows it apart. Mm. So, for instance, Anne Lister's diaries, and now mm. there's an Anne Lister drama coming out, which you know suddenly revealed for the first time a, a, a diary that recounted her passionate sexual interest in women, and you know that was a real landmark moment for history, the discovery and the translation you know, of yes, those diaries. Mm, yeah. Because there was no source before that. There was That's no right. source. And also and there was that assumption, wasn't there, that it was a romantic friendship till oh, 1900. So this blew the yeah. no yeah. sex. Yeah. They just sat together. <laughs> it was just gardening and, and pottery. You know, yeah. like little letters and things. <laughs> yes, there, and of course of she talks about grubbling, doesn't yes, she? Yes, Which has shocked and stunned many undergraduates. So I'm not sure what she meant by it, but I'll leave it to you. Your yeah. <laughs> yeah, but other sources. I mean, there's you know, it was once we came across that diary that was edited about the Manchester wig maker, oh, which yes. I think we discussed before, where he describes the different sexual positions that he adopts, mm. which is another very rare. So yes, he said took wife old fashioned, yeah, yeah. Took, took wife new, new fashion. fashion. Yeah. So much debate. No. I think the editor says that new fashion is the wife on top. Yeah, but there's, um, and, and there's, you know, that's but an assumption. That is an assumption. Yeah, How do we know? Yeah. But, you know, there's obviously... Well, there, I mean, I mean, there were lots of, you know, there were lots of guidebooks and things like that. And it's whether he had access to that or, you know, we again, we don't know what, what sort of printed material these people had access to, if they were talking amongst themselves, you know, and that, that sort of thing is, is lost to us. But taking it back to Queen Anne's court, <laughs> uh, I, also I think some of the reviews, the historical reviews that have pointed out the fact that Sarah and Anne grew up in the bawdy um, restoration court, yeah. actually that's a really fair point, in, point. in which there's, you know, there's a lot of Amongst the men, there's a lot of bisexuality and there's a lot of sexual play, uh, mockery, Quite wit. a lot of gender fluidity, especially yeah. with men. Yeah, and, and, and some vicious licentiousness. Yeah. Which, she, ex- which Duchess Marlborough exploited herself, like when she left court. You know, she created these narratives around the bawdiness of the court mm-hmm. and what Queen Anne was up to. So she was deploying that language against the court itself, which shows its currency mm-hmm. and it's kind of the, the way in which that sexualization of politics had a power at the time, at that contemporary moment. Um, and there's and much discussion, isn't there, at the time of how inappropriate, really, the Queen's... Uh, personal attachments were. I mean, they don't come out and say this is an unhealthy tendency, but there's a lot of talk of passion and inclination and perhaps the Queen's kind of uh, dependence on some of these women mm. goes too far. So clearly it's it's kind of in the ether, you know, it's in the political atmosphere that there's a suspicion around all of this and this might be a way to undermine her. And, but accusations of sexual impropriety always operate against politicians and monarchs. Mm. You know, especially in the 18th century, she, she's not the only one who's targeted with those kind it, of narratives. And it's and, also appropriate to, I mean, I mean, if you think about whenever there is a powerful woman, there is a critic somewhere in the background, or maybe not so far in the background, calling her either a whore or, or a lesbian or, you know, or a witch. And so, you know, here we have that 
again with Queen Anne, even though it's in this case, you know, it was Sarah Churchill who was behind that and, you know, saying, well, you know, she's a little bit too attached to her her her, her chambermaid and they share a bed together and this, that and the other. Although that must have also threatened to rebound back on Sarah herself. Well, and also then, it, you know, we need to reread this material from an academic prism in terms of what is this about? Does this become a discussion about the constitution as well and the power of the monarch and the nature of political personal power compared to kind of statecraft and state power? And you can start to unpeel all of those layers underneath those narratives about the sexualization of the core, which become not just about women's sexual activity, but about the foundations of the state, about who has access to the monarch, about how the court is structured, who has access to the monarch's person. All of those other ideas are swirling at the time. And I think that's one of the reasons it becomes so difficult for us or seems so foreign to us because so many of those ideas are so distant from our modern idea about how women behave, how politics is structured, how the state is organised, that you've got to get through so many layers of a kind of language of the past to access that material that it it can become anything once you start to look at those sources again. I also liked the fact, well, clearly the director is interested in these closed, bizarre worlds. And so the court is yet another one of those. And I think that's quite a good way to think about the court as this bizarre enclave which behaves according to its own rules but is also, you know, a rigid hierarchy and full of full of risk and jeopardy, but also opportunity. Well, that's why it made sense to me as well as a kind of history project because... I wasn't familiar with the director's work before I was contacted about the film, but I was asked to watch Dogtooth before I met him, which was his Greek language film. And then The Lobster came out. So I saw The Lobster whilst I was sort of talking about the script with the production. And it made sense to me then. I could see that Yorgos was interested in creating these closed worlds with their own eccentric rules, where the rules to the people within it make perfect sense. But but to the outsider, they seem to be incredibly bizarre and unnatural. And to me, I was like, well, that is the court. That is how the court operates. I can see how this is going to work as a you know for this director and what where he's possibly going to take it of course it was going to be a mystery at all beyond that <laughs> but, um I could see what the starting point was what about the rabbits ah oh, that's a good question I, is that it, the inspiration of you know the rabbit woman and the you know the woman who the Mary Toffs yeah yes. that had given birth allegedly given birth to rabbits did you give them this I, didn't, I don't know where the rabbits <laughs> came from and the rabbits <laughs> were always you, there Hannah? the <laughs> rabbits were always there but I always said I'm happy with the rabbits yeah. <laughs> because um well because there's this narrative about Mary Toft yeah. um who gives birth to rabbits but also because it seems Let's, to be by the such way a... by the way listeners at home she doesn't actually <laughs> give birth to <laughs> rabbits <laughs> you can find out more about this in the forthcoming book Um, she didn't actually give birth to rabbits Mary Toft but anyway uh, so the rabbits were in the script when I first saw it but I thought it was a very interesting way of thinking about Anne's obstetric history her you know, adult lifetime of bearing and losing children which is so hard to convey visually otherwise but it's there on the screen the whole time and I think that will be one thing that the audience will not forget about Anne's history. And it's one thing which is so just absolutely fundamental to understanding her as an individual and understanding her reign and the politics around it because her duty as a monarch was to produce an heir and she failed to do that after years and years and years and years of almost getting to the mark. And that is just, you know, kind of unspeakably cruel. And 
the rabbits, for all of their kind of cuteness and kitchiness and oddity, is a constant reminder on screen of that. So instead of having a running text, they're there and they're there at the end and they are a reminder of that. And I don't think we'll ever lose that memory now of, of that important part of her past. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. So obviously, um, with the release of this film, Queen Anne's having um, a moment, her reputation's being reassessed, reappraised. And what, what can you say, firstly, I guess, about how her reputation has changed, particularly in recent years, but then the wider reappraisal of, of powerful women in history that's kind of going on at the moment? In our kind of popular analysis of history, Queen Anne has often been missed off the register. And we had a very successful uh, theatre production over the last couple of years, as well as the film. And so I think that will secure her in terms of a time of history that will be subject to kind of new interpretations and narratives that are coming out in lots of different forms. But she, you know, we still underestimate the significance of what her reign does for the 18th century and that her, her reign is followed by a period of you know, comparable stability, not complete stability. There's still lots of kind of threats to the throne, but comparative stability to the century before. The first union of um, Scotland and England, um, a political continuity and, you know, a successful succession under very difficult circumstances of the, the royal family who were determined by Parliament to take the throne. Um, and you know, she has an important cultural legacy. People might have heard of Queen Anne houses and furniture. There's a reason for that. <laughs> it's a very vibrant cultural moment. Um, and I think that she will be subject to important reappraisals and we'll be seeing more of Queen Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should have said as well in the question, I, I know I said powerful women, but it's not just powerful women that are being looked at. It's, it's all women. I mean, I know, Hallie, you're working on uh, a book on, on Jack the Ripper's victims, for example, and there's there's seemingly new spaces being created for the many women that have previously been lost to history. Yes, I, I think that's really important. And that's one of the things that I think now we are much more open to in the mainstream to looking at women's experiences in history. Whereas this is something that I think certainly in academic circles, you know, 
uh, academics have been working on this for ages and it's always been enormously frustrating that it hasn't really penetrated into the modern zeitgeist and and now it is um there are so many lost stories and untold stories. And in fact, actually, the story of Queen Anne's experiences as monarch, you know, is part of that. I mean, she's so overlooked. Um, you know, we are we are obsessed with the Tudors. We're obsessed with Tudor queens. Um, we are obsessed with Queen Victoria. But, you know, here is a female monarch who has never had a look in before. Um, and I think, you know, we can say that about there's so many women who um, hopefully now that I hope the gates are being thrown wide open, we will hear their stories on television and in film. Um, the reach of television and film is so much greater than I hate to say it than books as somebody who relies on writing books for a living. Um, but, you know, it can open people's eyes and open people's minds and encourage them them to discover more and you know if that happens wow I mean what a renaissance we'll experience I think Hallie makes a very good point because there's a big difference between things that are widely discussed in academe and in our teaching where we take for granted for instance that women exercise power in lots of different ways and some exercise power in the 18th century in just the same ways that men exercise power so by virtue of wealth by virtue of family, rank, title, um, and access really to, to patronage. So a lady, if she's an heiress um, or if she's a widow, might be a, you know, a powerful political magnate. And we absolutely take that for granted in history, but it might seem perverse on the screen. And I just think there's a there's a huge time lag between what we know about between, I suppose the time lag between the research frontier and television is probably about 30 years. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And so, and, and some ideas just, you can't Contain. get it. Yeah, yeah. Because, because the audience's assumptions are governed by, um, yes, by television, what's seen as popularity, the long uh, well, the Nazis, which you oh. did mention. Yes, I forgot. <laughs> yes, so, no uh, queens there, really. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention the Nazis. <laughs> in fact, um, somebody in television said to me, the, the, the reign of the Nazis <laughs> on the BBC is known as the Fourth Reich. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's power goes on. A publisher once said to me about Hitler, she said, ah, oh, the gift that just keeps giving. Yes. I was like, what? Yeah. So... In, so you're absolutely right. There are fixed points which um, which an audience's attention has seen, you know, seem to be able to coalesce around and to get other stories on. So the 18th century often slips between yes, yeah. because people don't really, unless you're interested in architecture, then Georgian doesn't really convey much to you and the 18th century is not on the national curriculum so we're also the tail is wagging the dog as yeah. we like to say and it's an uphill struggle if you are somebody who has devoted most of your life mm -hmm. to to writing and researching and discussing the 18th century the long 18th mm. century um you know that you know it doesn't get a look in and these Tudor books and these Nazi books keep selling because that's what's being reinforced but thank goodness for Jane Austen I say yes. if it well, wasn't for Jane Austen but in a way that's that brings us right back full circle to the favorite because you know the depiction of 
is it's Jane Austen who's enjoyed a long reign on Sunday tea time, mm. uh, and they're. Every so often they say, oh, our version of Jane Austen, our version. Darker. Uh, yes, yes. ours is going to have grubby petticoats. I'm like, oh, oh. here we go again. <laughs> we go, this is the vicious. Okay, fine. But there seem to be a set of conventions yes. associated with, you know, the ball, the minuet, the, and, and we think we know exactly what we're going to get. And I think that that, it, it's... It's in that context that we should particularly enjoy the kind of the wicked naughtiness and baroque camp and of, the favorite, of the favourite. Yes. yes. In, in terms of women's narratives, though, I think we have a, a still a way to go in terms of the kind of stories that we're allowed to tell. And, you know, there's still a sense in which a woman has to be extraordinary. She has to have yes. challenged yes. the boundaries. Yeah. She has to be sexually exciting or she has to be, she has to be a remarkable feminist. or something yeah, terrible yes. has to have happened to her. She has to communicate yeah. modern values in some way. And so my new pitch now is the history of ordinariness. Well, that oh. ordinary women <laughs> who do really well at something, yeah. they don't have lots of sex with people necessarily, maybe a bit, you know, yeah. married they sex, but they, they're not hair. mistresses. <laughs> They don't do anything. They don't break glass ceilings, but they're just really good at what they do and they make a brilliant success of it. And that is the history, which is still <laughs> yes. to be written. Oh, but, but Hannah, the 18th century, more boring than you thought. <laughs> I just can't see that pitch working. <laughs> um, it's been fascinating talking about The Favourite with you all. And thanks so much for your time today. That was Amanda Vickery, Hannah Gregg and Hallie Rubenhold. Amanda is the author of several books, including Behind Closed Doors, At Home in Georgian England. Hallie's next book, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, is due to be published next month. Hannah is the author of The Beaumont, Fashionable Society in Georgian London. And you can read a piece by Hannah Gregg about Queen Anne's Court in the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now with Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots on the cover. And Hannah has also written about The Favourite for our website. You can find that article at historyextra.com forward slash the dash favourite. OK, so that's about it for today, but we will return on Monday when Kate Williams will be exploring the tragic life of Mary Queen of Scots. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.